You're listening to the Redfield Arts Audio Podcast. I just moved in my new house today. Moving was hard, but I got squared away. Bell started ringing and changed right loud. I knew I'd moved in a haunted house. Welcome to the podcast. This is Mark Redfield. Thanks for listening. Our guest on the podcast today is filmmaker and author Sean Paul Murphy. I've known Sean for many, many years. Um, We went to Towson University at the same time, got to know each other and work with each other uh, during our adult careers. Sean edited uh, a handful of my feature films. Sean uh, is a filmmaker. He is a film editor. He has written 14 screenplays that have been produced, have actually been made into motion pictures. Uh, And he is a published author. Uh, One nonfiction book and uh, the novel, his first novel that we'll be talking about today called Chapel Street. Chapel Street is... um, a combination horror novel, ghost story, uh, but we'll be getting into that as we chat. It's published by Touchpoint Press and it's available now as an ebook and uh, in print. From outer space, there sat a man on a hot stove with a pots and pans. believe in what I can see, and um, I don't think I've ever seen a ghost, but I believe that there was a non-human entity in the house where I previously lived with my family. So I believe in a demon, for lack of a better word, but I'm not 100% sure I believe in ghosts. And this, you know, um, in Chapel Street, this this entity, this thing is... Very uh, tricksy, and I—it's thought of and spoken of as a mysterious force, then a ghost, and then it's very, very specifically this kind of demonic entity that that you've just mentioned. Um, so much to talk about. I want to jump around a little bit. Chapel Street is your first published novel. Yes. And uh, you've uh, a background as a filmmaker, uh, a large part of your career as an editor in feature films, television, and uh, things. Um, what? And we're storytellers. This is a given. 
So this opens up all kinds of conversation. But what was the impetus? What was the final, what was the match that lit the fuse that, that you said to yourself, I'm telling this story and I, and I'm going to do it uh, as a, as a, as a novel. Okay. Well, that, that's easy. Um, you know, my family, we, we, between like 1974 and the time I moved out, though my family stayed in the house, I believe, until 2006, lived in a very actively haunted house. You know, mm-hmm. haunted, for lack of a better word. And um, I also experienced the suicide death, deaths of my sister Laura and my brother Mark. And, you know, neither of them were in the house when they died, though. But he the spirit of this thing in the house, this, this entity, was very persuasive, pervasive, pervasive, I should say, and and it could follow you. And at one, a couple of years ago, my mother pulled me aside once and asked me whether I thought the entity in the house was responsible in part for the deaths of my brother and sister. And that was a question I had long considered, and um, Chapel Street was sort of my response to it. And like like you, I, I'm a storyteller, and I felt that I really wanted to really answer that question, and I'm doing it in a series of blocks. But for me, I had to test the water, so I dealt with it fictionally in a book called Chapel Street. Um, the brief synopsis of the book is uh, Chapel Street is the story of a young man who finds himself battling a demonic entity that has driven members of his family to suicide for generations. And, in my case, it wasn't generations, but you know that's it's essentially a battle with a demonic entity over suicide, and I dealt with it fictionally in order to see what I how far I was willing to go in real life. And my sister uh, read the uh, rough draft of my book before, uh, maybe even before I sent it to my publisher, and um, she called it. She knew exactly what I was doing, and she said it, it was a cartoon version of the actual events. And that she meant not in a negative way, but that it, everything in the book was exaggerated beyond what we experienced. Yeah, it was, it was exaggerated, but it was real. You know, but right, was, right. She saw the re she saw the reality behind the various things that happened. So, you know, so well, that and that made her want to finally, you know, because we we never talked. I will say, I'll tell you this. We prob- in that house, we probably only had 10 conversations at most about it because we felt when we talked about it, we empowered it. And, you know, about made the it haunting worse. or the, the, you're talking about the haunting of the ghost in the actual house. Yes, we only, yeah. talk, we only talked about it. And that led my sister to say, maybe it's time we actually talk about this and what we all experienced because we never talked about it. So on my blog, seanpaulmurphyville.blogspot.com, you know, I'm doing a series of blogs called The Haunting at 21 St. Helens Avenue, where I'm actually interviewing my family members, and I'm going to be interviewing people outside the family, and then I'm going to go over the deaths of my siblings. And I would, I was hoping to have that all done by now, but because of COVID, you know, I, did, I have not finished the interviews yet. And I like to interview people in person. I didn't want to do, particularly on some things that are very personal, I want to sure. be face-to-face. And I'm waiting till COVID's over until I can um, begin the process again to finish to finish this up. Of course, so you know to to tell the story that is the novel Chapel Street, you're drawing from t- 
two very important things in your life, this so-called haunted house that you and others lived in, and the fact that you have dealt with uh, suicide of family members in your life and family. Let's talk about haunting first, um, because I'm fascinated by that. I... I'm a skeptic. I'm a bit agnostic about ghosts. I don't know. Um, if I come back and haunt you, then I'll know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, I have never, to my consciousness, know if I've experienced haunting ghost, poltergeist, or anything. No, my mother has. And my mother is convinced of ghosts by a very you know, universal definition. But I am curious about, in your experience, your manifestations and things that happened that that made you think that it was a haunting of something. And when did you start to hear, other than, or unless it's just your mom, when did you start to hear about other people having similar or shared experiences at the house? Well, I, I, I was a latecomer to the experiences at the house. Um, occasionally, when we moved in, people would say things like, they, we had this old church pump organ, you know, in um, the family room. And people would say they heard the pump organ play. But no one really mm-hmm. got into any of the intense personal stuff. You know, I lived in that house from 74. It was probably 85, 1985 before I had the first, like, real intense experience that couldn't be explained away as anything else. And that actually happened. It's almost, it's, it's almost a cliche. But my... Um, and it's, and it's, it's also kind of unfair to my mother when I say this, but my mother brought a friend of hers over that she worked with, and he had lost an aunt, and he wanted to communicate with her on the Ouija board. And uh, he brought a, they brought a Ouija board. They took it to a room on a third-floor bedroom in the attic, the front bedroom in the attic, which we subsequently later called the hell room because it was extremely active. And after that Ouija board session, everything in the house escalated, you know. But whatever was in the house was already there because mm. my, my sister, it seemed like at first it preyed mainly on the women and the family, and they kept it quiet. And until, but then it just got it just got so intense that um, people, you know, people, you know, they knew what happened. I mean, this is the kind of thing it would manipulate. You know, in addition to the cliche stuff like always hearing footsteps, you know, the presence of things, you know, it would right. manifest itself. You know, and this is the one thing I'm, I'm really really surprised by. I always assumed there was one thing in the house, you know, but. It seemed like there was something that was always in the house that was active on our second floor. And, you know, in this, in this series of closets that were joined together. An excerpt from Chapel Street. I opened the heavy glass doors of the mausoleum and stepped inside, shivering instinctively. Outside, the temperature hovered around 85 degrees and humid. But inside the mausoleum... It felt like 65 degrees. The white marble walls and floor sucked the heat right out of the air, leaving only a clammy humidity. I wrapped my arms around myself for warmth. As I did, I felt goose pimples rising on the exposed skin. 
suddenly realized I was afraid. Really afraid. But the longer, as I've been doing the interviews, whatever it was in that closet manifested itself physically different than the thing that was manifesting itself in the attic after the Ouija board thing. It did not Mm. manifest itself in the same way. And the thing on the third floor was much darker and much more aggressive. I mean, the thing would literally pick people up and throw it. You know, that's how it had buzz. Yeah, so... um, also, in other ways, it manifested itself. Um, it would speak in mimic voices. You know, it would it would talk to people. It never spoke to me. I never had that experience. But mm-hmm. plenty of other people at the house did, where it would speak, and it would speak in the name. Of, it would speak in the voice of someone you knew. Like yeah. my niece in her interview would say would say that it would when my when she moved in after my um, sister's suicide. She moved in our house for a while, and. Um, it would speak to her as my grandmother, as her grandmother, my mother. At the times my mother would be away on a trip or something, and it would be saying, Nat, what are you doing? Nat, where are you? And it would, it would speak to her in that voice, but she knew, and she knew my mother wasn't there. You know, but that was just one of the things it did. You know, and if you read the book, there's, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but there's, you know, that, that we take, I take advantage of that in the book as well. Of, um, you you use the beings. voices. Yeah, you use the voices in the novel. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, ghosts um, in fiction, in film and novels, whether it's the Canterville Ghosts or Richard Matheson, the, the Legend of Hell House or Stephen King's The Shining. There are some fascinating concepts and ideas, and I'm, and I'm curious what, over the years, some of your takeaways are. For instance, there tends to be a need in supernatural fiction for the ghost to want something, and these stories are told where a murder is solved. A, uh, the ghost finds a sense of peace, I'm thinking of. Uh, the Canterville ghost. The ghost is vengeful and angry. I'm thinking of the legend of Hell House, or, or Hell House, yeah. as Matheson's novel is called. Yeah. And this concept that I love in fiction that Stephen King uses in The Shining, where a place is haunted and a place can be like a battery, a battery of memories, a battery of events, and absorb and keep this stuff roiling around for eternity or, again, dramatically, until something's resolved. With all of the stories, and now that you've written the novel and and you've had a chance to dramatize some of these ideas, now that you're talking talking to other family members that have had experiences, what takeaways do you have? Do any of those kind of scenarios fit the entity or entities of the house on... uh, uh, St. Helens uh, Avenue. St. Helens Avenue? Yeah, first of all, I do want to say, I always call it St. Helens Avenue because we no longer live in that house. And right. um, so it's sort of, it's, in a way, it's sort of a pseudonym, but not really because the street was originally called St. Helens Avenue because house is in Baltimore, Maryland. The, it was, the original address of the house was 21 St. Helens Avenue. But sometime between like 1925 and 1927, the address and numerical designation changed to the current address. So there, right. so there is, it really was 21 St. Helens Avenue, but it's something uh-huh. else now. 
and I'm really trying to protect the uh, the um, privacy of the people who live there now. But of movies, then, I would then say, I, I, I promise I won't put the Google Maps up on the <laughs> website. Okay, <laughs> I think you might know where the house is. So, um, but you're uh, well. You know, it's funny because when I read the novel, it is it takes place in Baltimore, in Maryland, and surrounding neighborhoods. So. I had the advantage of really knowing what things looked like, which direction streets went in, whether we were in the Inner Harbor or we were north of Baltimore and Towson. And so that was a plus to me. And the descriptions are very vivid and great uh, sense of place. But um, takeaways from the real haunting, what, are, what conclusions are you drawing at the moment? Well, well, first thing I just want to say, if you want to know a movie that we feel I would say this is true of every member of my family that I've ever discussed this with. The one, the movie that most accurately reflects what it's like to live in the haunted house, or at least live in the one we lived in, would be yeah. the uh, nineteen was a nineteen sixty two version of um, the haunting by you know uh, Robert Wise version. The Robert Wise that, film based on the Shirley Jackson novel, yeah, 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 and um, which was recently remade as the uh, Haunting Hill House. But the original version of that movie, because it's really, what is really terrifying, you know, at least in the initial stages, is like all of the, um, all the knockings, the movings, and this and that. And that's when what really resonates with the people in my family I've talked to is the fact that these horrible things would happen all night. And then you wake up in the morning and you can't reconcile it. You think you're crazy. And I really yeah. think that was a key is that Whatever it was, was essentially driving us crazy because you, when you wake up in the morning and it's sunny, because it was active during the day, too, but at a, at a much smaller, at a much lesser level. It's like, what happened couldn't have happened. You know, it was, you know, it just couldn't have. You're crazy. I mean, we all thought we were crazy, you know, while we lived mm-hmm. in that house, while that was going on. And, I mean, I was, like, loving my life. I was a producer for an advertising agency, lots of friends, living a very active life. But, you know, then I would be driving home, and it would be like, oh, my God, I'm going, it's night, and I'm going there. You know what I mean? It was like, hmm. you don't think that you don't even think about it during the day. You know, but when, when you got home, you, you had no idea. And I do want to say, one, you know, um, so what does this thing want? So, well, here's the one thing that surprised me, because I heard people say they thought it was a ghost. They thought that it was a human entity. But their recognition of it, subsequent is, and this is a question I ask in all the interviews, is do you think what was in the house was human? And pretty much everybody says, no, it wasn't. But they definitely wow. felt that it was, that it, it wanted to kill us. It really, they, everyone felt it wanted to kill us. You know, that was what it wanted. And um, I don't think it could kill us directly, though my brother was picked up and thrown against a wall. And um, the um, main conceit of the novel, Chapel Street, has the lead character, you know, being driven, driven to suicide, you know, kind of, against his, kind of against his will. He wakes up, he lives in a high-rise house, which is a community outside, right outside of Baltimore. You know, he lives in a 10-story apartment with a balcony, and he wakes up every morning on the balcony you know, ready to jump off. You know, he like sleepwalks himself into that situation. And that is based on actual events. An excerpt from Chapel Street. 
my life was over. I was tempted to just release my arms and fall forward. There wouldn't be any pain. If I landed headfirst, my brain would be destroyed by the impact before the nerves could relay the sensation. Then I wouldn't have to answer the questions or face the stares from everyone I knew. The most frightening thing that happened to me at the house was after this Ouija board incident, things escalated and escalated. And I was finding myself literally banging my knee. I was, I had a, I, I lived on the back third floor bedroom, you know, across from what we call a hell room. And I would wake up crawling out of that high window. There was like a little uh, roof outside of it. But, you know, our house was a very large, it's the third story, and there was a very large drop-off because we were on a hill off the back of there. Had I fallen off that roof, I would have died. There was no question about it. And, um, mm. but, you know, I, you know, I would always wake up hitting my knee or hitting something like against the, there was a wooden window and a wooden window sill hit my head or my knee climbing out of that window. And that was really terrifying because you're like out of control of yourself in a circumstance like that. And what that's what I really tried to capture in the book. And, but for you, were these episodes, um, just so that I have a little bit more of a handle, were these sleepwalking episodes or a kind I have of... never sleptwalked. I have never yeah. sleptwalked in my life. Yeah. This was some sort this was some sort of manipulation. And here's how I can tell you a hundred percent. Because you know, you're when you're in a circumstance like this, you're always looking for a rational explanation for what's happening. Sure. But here's how here's how it could not be proven to be rational. You know, that there was no rational explanation. Because it was at three AM. I would go I would like go back to my bed and I'd look at the clock the first night, three AM. Second night, mm-hmm. three AM, third night, three AM. If I'm sleepwalking ah. There is no way I can tell I'm going to be sleepwalking at a specific time. I just don't think there's any possibility that that would happen. And that's what really, really scared me. And after that, I really went into this. I was raised Catholic. I really went into a a period of intense prayer, which led Mm -hmm. to essentially we were never able to cast it out of our house. And this is much like uh, The Shining in the sense that I think all of us, there's another interesting that came through on the interviews. All of us seem to believe, and we've been starting to talk to some quote-unquote experts about it because people are reading the blogs and giving us information, is mm-hmm. that whatever was there was probably there before us. You know, there was no triggering uh-huh. event because it was there from day one. And we also know it was in other neighboring, it was in neighboring houses too. You know, so this is something. So it wasn't it, yeah, it wasn't visited because of you or your family, or your family. It wasn't manifested by your family that it was something that existed before and onward. And I'm sure it's still there. There's, there's stuff that's happened. Yeah. I'm learning stuff that happened, you know, with the owners after us that make me very convinced that. They also experienced it. I've heard nothing of the people who are currently in the house, so I don't know anything they're experiencing. So, but I do believe, although it's always there, I do believe you can trigger it to make it to um, you can make it worse. You know, but it's always there. I, I believe it's there now. 
you know, um, and I'm not, I'm not planning to test it right now, <laughs> but, um, I believe it's still there's there. another, there's another, um, very deeply emotional aspect of your life that feeds into the novel Chapel Street. You just, uh, you touched on it a moment ago with your experiences and you, you use those, um, in creating a major set piece, a major moment in the novel with your character, uh, Nick. <clears throat> um, uh, Rick. Rick, sorry, Rick, sorry. Yeah. I wrote a character named Nick who deals with ghosts. So you'll, you'll forgive me if I, <laughs> if I blank in the, in season 13, our ghost comedy, my guy's name is Nick Papadakis <laughs> and your guy's name is Rick, but Bacchus. quite. Uh, what's your, what's your character's last name? Did you say? Uh, he's a, he's a, got a Greek mother's Papadakis. Okay, because mine has a Bohemian name, so it's so good that we chose the, a pretty good ethnic Yeah, they're name. in the continent. Oh, and by the way, when you say Bohemian, do you mean, uh, because this is something I had to think about for a moment, do you mean Hungary, Hungarian? No, uh, Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia, I see. Right, yeah. yeah. You see, it, 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 it is Czechoslovakia, it'd be Czechomarie. Czech, you know, um, the Czech Republic now. But my yes. grandparents, you know, them and my relatives who are second generation, never called it Czechoslovakia. They always right. called it Bohemia. And they went to, right. when they were young, they went to Bohemian school. And they didn't, right. they didn't go to Czech school. They learned the language and everything. And sadly, when my grandmother died, you know, last year, when she died, I said, oh, my goodness. She was the last one who could pronounce the family names properly because they're not as they're not as clear as they used to be. And I know cousins of mine who pronounce their you know last names too, and I know that they're not the way my grandmother pronounced them. And I know my grandmother pronounced them correctly. <laughs> so oh, I know. The I mean, for the names are all gone now, and that's a that's a shame. In my family, my mom's family is Yugoslavian uh, German nationals. Um, and uh, so there is language loss. And she, my mom, is an only child. And her parents are long gone. They they, they both passed away many years ago. Well, so uh, I, no, I do take the uh, opportunity to interview her and all. On film, we have started a project. I don't want to. I don't want to get off uh, Chapel Street, uh, but uh, we have started a project that I right now I'm calling my mother's story, and I've been recording. Uh, I, I've been uh, letting her. I give her a few questions, let her gestate some things, and then we sit down and we just and I and I let her talk, and uh, that that provides me a way to sort of sort of like documentary audio storytelling but uh, and while we're on the subject um and before we get to the the serious subject of suicide and family suicide genealogy has been and and here we are you just kind of open the door uh you've been fascinated by your family's history genealogy and cemeteries um yeah tell tell your readers about all of that well uh <laughs> Well, genealogy is because do, we, do we have the time? Because I'll bet you this. Yeah, is a whole I know. Other I'll, podcast. I'll, I'll make I'll make it quick. Um, yeah, we can do a whole thing on uh, on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, my grandfather, my mother's father, sort of took off and had a secret second family, 
and no one ever discussed it around me. You know, I would hear a little comment here and there. But then one wow. day I came home, and uh, my mother put opened an obituary. You know, she was, you know, sitting out back, and she kind of denies the story now. But uh, she was sitting out back, and I was over to pick something up. I didn't live at home anymore. And and she goes, hey, look at this obituary. And the name was uh, Protony, which is my mother's maiden name. And I was always told I was related to everyone who had that name with that spelling anywhere in the world. And so she said it, and it was a guy, Gino Protony. And I said, uh, she goes, do you know who he is? And I go, well, I know he's related to us. She goes, it's my brother. I didn't even know he existed. Wow. Because it listed the parents, and it was my mother's parents. So at that point, I'm like, this is crazy. I got I to gotta figure out what's going on. So I become I became obsessive with genealogy subsequently. And when you're obsessed with genealogy, the next thing is, you know, usually if you're a person who spends as much time in the field as I do, it becomes about cemeteries. And I really, uh, you know, I really want to visit the graves of all my relatives. And then I wanted to make sure that the graves were being maintained. So, you know, I became, you know, interested in, cemetery maintenances and visiting cemeteries. And I started putting them on a, a site called, my memorials to my relatives on a site called um, Find a Grave, which I deal with in my book, but I call it um, Find a, um, I call it, uh, what do I call it? Restingplace.com, which was originally right, the, right. the name of the book, actually. And But no, really, it was a problem because anytime I said it, the program for converting it to a hyperlink. So I went with Chapel Street, which is a street in Baltimore where my family, around where my family lived downtown Baltimore. So that's my genealogy and that's my cemetery story. And I'm still obsessive. An excerpt from Chapel Street. A ceramic photo of the deceased was attached to the vault above her name. I smiled briefly despite my growing dread. I always appreciated when people included a photo of the deceased on their grave. A photo gives you a definite feel for the dead person. This black and white photograph revealed an attractive woman in her mid to late forties. Her dark hair and eyes didn't surprise me. My years of walking through cemeteries taught me that Italians, Jews, and Eastern Europeans were most likely to memorialize their loved ones with photos so I expected her to have stereotypical dark features. My assumptions about her ethnicity could have been confirmed by looking down at her name, but her eyes wouldn't release mine. They drew me in and pulled me forward. They were not inherently intimidating or scary. The eyes, much like the half-smile lingering beneath them, hinted at a world-weary wisdom they shimmered with the power to seduce, but lacked even a hint of love. The dark lady seemed to possess a cynical secret that empowered her, but at a terrible price. People spent centuries speculating on the meaning of the Mona Lisa smile, but I didn't want to know the reason behind the dark woman's smile. I knew instinctively it would terrify me. My most popular blogs now are stories of strangers. I just go through cemeteries and take pictures of monuments, and then I investigate them in the old newspaper files, and I call it Grave Tales, and they're my most popular blogs now, are about these stories about 
people who had really odd lives or um, great tragedies. And that's uh, that's key to uh, that's our fascination with the stories about ourselves and particularly uh, memory and death and cemeteries. Um, it's not. I mean, I'm very happy because people are too easily forgotten in this world. So I yes. really like telling these stories and keeping. And then since I particularly like young children who never had any, you know, didn't have children to remember them. I'm really kind of obsessive if I see a grave to make sure I mark it, you know, to make sure I put it online so that at least this child is remembered in our new way of um, doing things in the world, which is online. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I do want to touch on uh, this important aspect of things that you drew from your life. You, um, in Chapel Street, your novel, you uh, have a dedication at the very beginning to um, your brother, Mark, the... um, You've had to deal with and experience in your family suicide. Uh, this is central to the character arc and the story in your novel, Chapel Street. Uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, suicide in your family? Yeah, it's um, the, the two um, the two main the two in our branch were uh, my sister, who was not really exhibiting symptoms and. At the time, we wouldn't have thought she was exhibiting any symptoms of mental illness. We knew she was under a lot of stress. And then she ended up shot, and she shot herself. And afterwards, it's sort of like, wow, if we were more aware, we might have picked up the pieces. We may have seen danger signs that we didn't see. But my brother, on the other hand, was exhibiting like bipolar syndrome, schizophrenia, since his um, early 20s. So he was sort of like a train running down a track, you know, and it was like, there was like nothing we could do, you know, for him. And it was, you know, it was a very, very tragic, but it was like, there was nothing we could do. Now, I had written, before I wrote Chapel Street, I wrote a memoir called The Promises or the Pros and Cons of Talking with God that was published by Touchpoint Press. And in that, I discussed, because it fit into my, the, the narrative story of my life better, I discussed my sister Laurie's suicide attempt, and also my own, I also attempted suicide in um, my early 20s, you know, I ultimately stopped myself, but um, that, I don't, that's not worth going into now, you know, but I dealt with my sister's death in, uh, in the uh, first book, and I really felt I needed to um, deal with my brother, so that's why I dedicated the book um, Chapel Street to my brother Mark. And a lot of what is said, and there's a character, the book is really about brothers. There's Rick, who's alive and on the verge of suicide, being tormented by this creature, this entity. And meanwhile, his brother has already killed himself. But once Mm -hmm. once the narrative starts, he's being visited by his late brother, which gives him a chance. And this is something, on one hand, it's, it's terrifying to him, but it also is giving him a chance to say the things he wishes he had always said to his brother before he died. Now, the brother, the, the brother whose name is Lenny in the book is very much my brother Mark. You know, except uh-huh. that Mark is my younger brother. Lenny is mm-hmm. based on Mark. A lot of the things he said, Mark said, when, you know, I'm very delicate about talking about mental illness, but a lot of the stuff that is said about mental illness, a lot of the things that um, 
Rick experienced, I think my brother experienced, and a lot of the attitude that my, and I express a lot of the things my brother said about his condition. I put it in Lenny's mouth. And in, and in a very real sense, this is giving me an opportunity also because of my brother's unstable mental condition at times. I never really got to, you know, do as much or say as much that I wanted with him. So this gave this writing this book. You know, Rick is enjoying the opportunity. terrified, but he's enjoying the opportunity to finally talk with his brother again. His brother, his dead brother is like sane. So he gets to uh, talk to him. But the question is, is he really talking to his brother, you know, in the book? So, um, and so in the sense, the book let me examine, you know, whenever there's suicide in a family, there's always guilt. Everybody, mm. there's always guilt. There's always layers of guilt and layers of layers of layers on guilt. You know, it's like, why, why didn't I see this? Why didn't I stop that? Which is what, you know, pretty much everyone in my family felt about my sister, you know, and it's like, and Mark, they feel the same way. Why couldn't, you know, did we do everything we could, you know? So in a sense, Rick is dealing with his guilt about not having done enough for his brother, and in the book, you know, and, and I was, I'm doing the same thing. I was channeling my own thoughts for Rick and Lenny's, my brother Mark's thoughts as he expressed them to me through the character of Lenny. So, yeah. you know, it's a very, it was a very intense book for me to write. And I dealt with it fictionally so that I could see whether I could deal with it in its actuality in, you know, looking at, and I will be dealing on my blog I will be dealing in great detail with the deaths of both of my siblings. But, you know, COVID, as I said, COVID has slowed me down. Right. The, you know, the, they say the old cliche is uh, write what you know. And I don't necessarily agree with that. Otherwise, we wouldn't have things like um, James Bond or Indiana Jones. But yeah. what, what you've done with Chapel Street is really quite wonderful. And I've known you for a number of years. I've known little bits and pieces or colors of some of the things that we're talking about today. And, but it really is quite wonderful for you to take these two major threads from your life and, and, and create the story that is in, in Chapel Street. I want to just touch on for a moment, uh, pure technical, just purely uh, method. Um, I'm, I'm curious as a fellow writer and for other writers, how do you write? Was it, uh, you know, do you have the opportunity to write regularly every day, shut the door, sit down and get the work done? When and how did you write Chapel Street? Well, this is going to get me in trouble, maybe, because oh. um, cause I was working for National Geographic at the time on the night shift. And... Um, <laughs> As a as a as a film editor, as a picture editor, as a yeah. Film, yeah, as a picture editor, and their technology was such that when we had to export shows at the end of the night, and sometimes I'd have to export two shows. You know, it was not real time. You know, like other technology systems allowed me. It just takes me a minute to export a TV show because you just lift one file up in in one bin and put it in another bin in another program and automatic functions take over. But on here, we literally had to sit and watch, you know, that bar go across the screen, you know, the uh, progress mm -hmm. bar. So mm -hmm. I was writing the book 
while I was working there, I wouldn't say I wrote worked on the book every night there, but there were a lot of times I would I would wake up and um, I would um, you know get ready. I'd go to work and I would go to work and I would um, usually send myself a copy, the latest copy of the file. And if I had some time, I would I would write the book there. And then you know I would get home. Maybe I would um, do a little more writing, and then the next day it's over. So. Um, the writing of the book did not really take that long. It was much quicker to write than I expected it would be. But the decision to actually send it out for possible publication took much longer. I sat on it for over a year before my wife finally said, you know what, you should really just send that out and see what people think of it. And I'm like, oh, okay, I think I will. And then I did. You know, because I wasn't, you know, in a sense, I was writing. And I think this is probably true of you too, Mark. I think when you're writing something, if you're a writer, if you're a storyteller, you are telling, you, you're the primary audience. You're sure. writing something yeah. for you. I always, that's the best stuff, I think, yeah. Because if you're not writing it for you, you're not being true to why you're writing, I think. And I've done a lot of commissioned work. You know, a lot of the movies sure. I were were commissioned and in order to in order to write those things i had to figure how what was emotionally true because a lot of the stuff had you know the characters wouldn't necessarily be something you know were not me and not but i had to find something that was emotionally true to me in order to get a handle on the characters you know mm-hmm. and i wouldn't say necessarily it had to be my life it had to be what i knew but it had to be emotionally true to me and yeah, um, yeah. Apple Street was, um, you know, it was, you know, obviously it was more than just emotionally true. I mean, it was a romantic class in, in a certain way. But um, but it still becomes um, it still becomes something that's outside of you that you yeah. are working on and you find ways, which actually leads me because you have spent a great deal of your career as an editor and as a film editor where you are assembling or making sense or interpreting or trying to be objective about somebody else's work. My question is, how does the editor work with an editor? Um, your Chapel Street's going to go through a couple of different stages in this. You, you mentioned that you didn't try to sell it to a publisher right away. Um, you let some people read it. I think, uh, I forget what sister you mentioned. Uh, yeah, my it. sister read it. Yeah. Um, T- Trish uh, Schweers read it to give yeah. you feedback, I think. Well, Trish um, Schweers is an old friend of mine. And she, she, she's like, you know, after my wife, she's like, she's like my proofreader. She's not my proofreader. She's literally an editor. You know, oh, on, yeah. my first, on my first book, she cut a hundred. She she convinced me to cut a hundred pages out of it, you know. And uh, so, how do you? So, how do you, as the editor, work with Trish or the the publisher's editor to get to the final thing? Is it is it easy? Here's the phrase: "Kill your darlings." Yeah. How's the dance go for you? Is it easy to work with an editor? Or? Well, because I know Trish and she knows me. It's easy to work, you know, basically Trish gets the hard, you know, Trish is is working with me, so she's getting the hard work done. And you, you, and you can't and, lie to her and you can't fake her out. She knows you. Yeah. 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 And she kind of <laughs> knows what, you know, what's real. And, she, and you know, it's sort of like when you did the movie uh, 
Cold Harbor with Tom Brand, the late Tom Brandow. You know, a lot mm. of that was real, and it was hard sometimes to get Tom off of things that, you know, were real to him. You know, and it's the same in, way in trying way to. With, yeah, right, you right. Know? In and, trying to fictionalize but, things that may have been a real life event. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So once, um, you know, it's. I've been very lucky with the book publishers in the sense that um, on because Trish did such a good job prior to the publisher getting the book, on uh, my first book, The Promise of the Pros and Cons of Talking with God, they literally only cut out a couple paragraphs that they felt wow. were distracted from it. This one, they hardly cut any content, though they did, they did request changes in um, the other thing, which I'm really shocked. And I'm really happy because um, the editor told me when she saw that it was a first-person narrative book, she mm-hmm. looked at him with dread. And she told me when, you know, because she's a professional um, book editor. And she told me that a lot of times when people bring um, first-person narrative to her, she makes them rewrite the book in the third person. I'm like, That's you tell people they have to... Yes, I say you tell people they have to rewrite the book, and she's like, "Yes, I do," and they do. See, this is this is fascinating to me because I've never read. Well, this is actually a lie. Now that I'm about to say these words, I was about to say I've never written anything in the first person. Where that's a lie is with the audio drama, because a lot of the audio drama is narrated by yeah. the person who was there. So that's okay, but that's a different thing, and that's a different way to dramatize something. I find in prose, I have avoided approaching anything in in first person. I'm terrified of it. I'm terrified of getting bottled in a very small bottle. I I like the omniscient. I like being able to write in the third person. And I understand why the editor is saying that. Chapel Street works really, really well. And as all... And I don't want to peg it as a, because it is a ghost story. It is a horror story. It is a ghost story. It is a mystery story. And as the slow burn, as Chapel Street unfolds, I think you handle the first person really well. And um, Well, thank you. An excerpt from Chapel Street. My lungs were aching when I finally saw the woman coming up toward me from the depths. I saw her hands first, reaching up toward me. Then her face slowly came into view. It was indeed my mother, but she looked younger than the time of her death. Her reddish-brown hair swirling in the murky water hadn't turned gray yet, but she was still dead. Her freckles stood out like smallpox against the deathly white pallor of her skin. Her eyes were wide open and angry. I had never seen her look at me with such undisguised rage while she was still alive. She opened her mouth in a breathless scream. I screamed too, expelling the last of my oxygen as I protectively put my hands ahead of me. She grabbed them, knitting her fingers together with mine. She dragged me downwards, I struggled for a moment, but I lost my strength when I lost my last breath. As I drifted out of consciousness, I wondered how far down she would take me. Would it be all the way to hell? 
So I'm curious if there is a other shoe or a punchline with the editor in why she didn't suggest to you to turn it into the third person. But I but I'm glad she didn't or you resisted because I think yours works really well. No, she she liked it. She felt it was done really well, so she liked it. I was very Good. happy yeah, with yeah, that. Yeah. And I'll tell you what I like about uh, First Person is, um, you know, I really struggled. I had written, actually, novels before, but never even sent them out for publication because I struggled with a voice, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of like if I wrote something that's detective, I felt it should be a mystery or something, it had to sound like Dashiell Hammett. You know, right. horror, it had to sound like Stephen <laughs> King. So as a result, I lost all perspective. But mm. when I wrote my memoir, which obviously was going to be in first person, um, one thing people said they really liked was the voice. And I'm yeah. like, well, what voice are you talking about? Then I realized they were talking about my voice. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I think I found the solution to the problem. I, that is why I never sent anything out, you know, is because... I was never confident with the voice. But the other thing, and particularly in this story, is the fact that um, I, I wanted the limited perspective because Rick, it's a mystery to Rick. He has no idea what's going on. And, and I, I want the audience to learn as he does. And I think that's what makes it more impactful and uncomfortable and scary for him as it progresses. Because he only knows, because we, the reader, only knows as much as he knows. Um, so I think that's another reason that it works. And I think that the way you are explaining your voice, that comes through in Chapel Street as well. There's an old thing not to be afraid of, uh, and I don't know who said this. You mentioned Stephen King. This might be even something that he has written about about writing, and that is... Um, you know, when he started out, he wrote like Ray Bradbury. He wrote like yeah. this one. He wrote like that one. Do it. Get it out of your system. Um, I'd love to see <laughs> a future novel. Uh, I mean, do what your heart wants to do. Uh, and I am looking forward to, to future fiction and novels from you. But, um, yeah, I think it's okay to imitate as you find your voice. But I really do understand you know, uh, first person, and uh, I think it works really, really well in Chapel Street. Well, thanks. And one thing I learned later, and, I, and I'm, I'm glad I kind of lucked into it, I was reading something with um, with a guy Patterson, you know, the best-selling author. Ja- uh, is it, it's James ja- for The Factory. Yeah, James, the factory. James Patterson. The Factory. So, yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily think it. you know, when you have like 18 people working on a book, I don't know if it counts as literature anymore, but... Um, one thing he pointed out was that he liked limit, more limited perspective because mm-hmm. then you can make a mistake. Because he was talking <laughs> like, he, he goes, like, male readers, you know, I think this was on one of those great courses or something, I forgot what it was. But he's like, if he goes, like, if you make a mistake about a gun, like a certain gun, you know, like it has this many bullets or you cock it in this way. Right, if you make right, a mistake right. and you're third person omnipotent, you know, um, omniscient, yes. you make, omniscient. Yeah, you, if you know everything, if you're godlike and know it all, yes. And then you make a mistake. <laughs> he said, "You will never win back that male viewer." He goes, "Women are will forgive you." He goes, "But so that way, if your character is limited, 
if he if, so if I make a mistake about it, you know, Rick is thinking about shooting himself. He's not. And I'm just saying, for example, and he's talking about a kind of a gun, and um, you know, and he, and he makes a mistake talking about it. Anyone who really knows guns would just say, "Oh, this guy's an idiot," you know. But they're not going to think I'm an idiot. They're going to think Rick's an idiot because you know Rick and doesn't. That's have actually. That's actually a good point. The uh, and and then that's what research and thank God editors are for. You remind me yeah. of the famous what's what's the famous Bogart Bacall based on the Raymond Chandler that I'm thinking of. Um, um, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking Big Sleep. The Big Sleep, and uh, isn't the famous story that Hawks calls Chandler and says, "Hey, wait a minute, what happened to this character that got bumped off?" And this is when they're pre-production to make the movie and apparently Chandler answered hell if I know you know yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's the guy who wrote the, wrote the thing and uh, it's funny 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 so uh, I, I'm when uh, when uh, this uh, chat ends I'm going to give everybody uh, all of the websites to um, be able to find Chapel Street and your blog what are you working on now what's next I am working on a. Uh, I'm working on another novel called um, called Lifelike, which uh, it doesn't sound like it's more cheerful than Chapel Street, but it's about a guy. It's slightly a. I'm calling it for marketing purposes a uh, a high tech ghost story. It's about a guy hmm. who works in a slightly futuristic mausoleum, and uh, where people are, there's like lifelike holographic facsimiles to people. I, how it's, the, the bodies are presented is much like uh, a movie I'm sure you remember called um, The Black Cat with um, uh, Carl Lugosi. Yeah, like when he took him into the basement to show um, Lugosi where his dead wife and she's displayed yeah. in this um, in this um, white cha- in this um, you know, glass chamber and that sort of in- that, that image is really kind of what inspired it. But this guy's working in there, and these people have, like, written their memories, you know, have gone through a severe, you know, question, and and now they, now artificial intelligence is allowing them to answer questions with what they have fed into a computer system. And this guy is talking to this uh, beautiful woman, who is, who is dead, obviously, and he begins to believe that she was not a suicide, as people think, but that she was murdered. Mm-hmm. And when he tries to when he tries to begin to prove it, he ends up getting in trouble because if someone is murdered, you got to take into account that whoever murdered that person may not want you to be you know going around saying, "Hey, I think this person was murdered." So he finds he's like a slacker, and um, he finds himself in very serious trouble. So in a sense, it's a lot like Chapel Street. It, a lot takes place in the cemetery. There's a you know there's a, a suicide scene, and um, <laughs> but it's much lighter. I would almost call it a comedy, you know, and it's first it. person, but it's not first person like Rick. This guy is younger, more sarcastic, you know, um, He's a different, uh, different so, character to give you a, to give you a, something to riff on and to, to create. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, so I, I hope he's different enough that people aren't saying, Hey, it's the same guy. I hope he is different. Enough, <laughs> so. I think he will. He's certainly, uh, he's certainly, uh, I would say, edgier than uh, than Rick. Rick is kind of like a sad sack loser, you know. Rick really resembles me, you know. So, um, 
<laughs> this guy, this guy resembles me less. Hey, Rick is a fictionalized version of you that is a lot like you and nothing like you. So you're, you're well, no well, 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 say, yeah. Well, take, yeah, <laughs> well, take, take the good parts of me. It's <laughs> good things of Rick and say those are like me. <laughs> but Rick has a lot of my same habits and obsessions. An excerpt from Chapel Street. Hurry, Rick, Terry pleaded. Trust me, I didn't need any prompting along those lines. I sped up, but the distance between us continued to shrink. The nearer she got, the more Anna changed. The formerly alluring specter transitioned into something hideous. The hair on her head fizzled away, as if consumed by fire. Her skin blackened and her eyeballs collapsed, inward leaving empty, lifeless sockets. She was all hate now, and anger, and every evil thing. You know, um, and um, the character in uh, Andy, Andy and... Um, and uh, lifelike, you know, is, you know, he has his interests are a little different than mine, you know. But he still has the same sense of justice. And this is important. Yeah. This is this is important. Listen, thank you. This has been, uh, and we'll we'll have some other chats about other things. We could talk about screenplays. We could talk about your career uh, in the. Um, Writing screenplays for the Christian market. That's, oh, that's, please, uh, get me talking about that. That's <laughs> a deep dive right there. Yeah. And um, So I think we'll be doing this again, but thank you for your time well, I, for this one. Well, thank you, Mark. I don't say I, I always enjoy talking with, with you, and, um, you know, I really love your uh, film encyclopedic knowledge. You know, I love your 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 storytelling, and also it's it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And I have worked with you in case in case the audience doesn't realize it. I have, I have worked on a number of movies with you, and I've always enjoyed editing the movies with you and going out to get some um, going out to get some Mexican food afterwards and talk about James Bond movies for a couple of hours. You know, it, oh, it's always Sean, been nothing but fun. I, I miss those. I miss those. I miss those days. I miss those work yeah. days. I mean, uh, yeah. For those who don't know, Sean has uh, edited uh, a handful of uh, movies. I've had something to do with uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and The Death of Poe. And, uh, yeah, there's a favorite restaurant that is no more that we would usually end the day on. And, oh, over the years, um, Oscar night party pools. Yeah. There won't uh, be one this year. There will be no, no Oscar party. But hope springs eternal that as we uh, we keep going in the positive directions we're going this year, that 2022 might be uh, might be a more positive new normal. So let's hope as we get our as we keep working and get our voices out there. Well, I I, I hope so, and um, hope by the time this is out, more people have gotten their um, gotten their um, you know vaccines and all. You know, it's let's let's put this behind us and get back to doing what we all do best. And I don't know what everyone's doing, but I'm sure they will. there's stuff they would rather be doing than what they're doing. This is is true. Yeah. All right, my friend. Talk to you very, very soon. Thanks again. Okay, thank you. Bye. 
made up in my mind to stay Nothing was gonna drive me away When I seen something that give me the creep Had one big eye and a two big feet I'd like to thank Sean Paul Murphy for joining us and being our guest on the podcast. I highly recommend his novel, Chapel Street. It's available. Uh, you can find it. Uh, search Chapel Street, and you can find the ebook or order a print copy. You can go to touchpointpress.com to find Chapel Street. For more of Sean's ramblings and musings and investigations into the haunting and entity that haunted the house that he lived in, um, among other thoughts about filmmaking and pop culture and other things, uh, check out Sean Murphy's great uh, blog. You can find that at Sean Paul Murphyville. Dot blogspot.com Again, that's Sean Paul Murphyville blogspot.com We did uh, touch on uh, suicide. Uh, the suicides in Sean's family. And uh, it would be remiss of me not to mention the suicide prevention hotline. Um, if you know someone, if you are having thoughts about taking your life. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 800-273-8255. Help is available. Speak to someone today. This is Mark Redfield, and thank you for joining us on the podcast. Be safe. Take care. <laughs>